Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Hello, my name is Dean Becker, and I welcome you to this edition of Cultural Baggage. We've got a very busy show today. In a little bit, we'll hear from Cliff Thornton, who's running for governor in the state of Connecticut, and he's going to tell us about the Bridgeport mayor's uh, problems with cocaine and his request to the press to forgive him for his sins. First up, we hear from Gary Jones. He's a former guard at a Tallahassee prison where an FBI agent and a prison guard were killed and another guard was left critically wounded. Well, on the morning of Wednesday, June 21st, uh, a team of FBI agents stormed a federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida, to uh, stop the guards from exchanging drugs for sex with the women prisoners. And here to uh, talk about it, uh, we have with us uh, Gary Jones, who uh, spent uh, approximately eight years working in this prison. Hello, Mr. Jones. Hello, how you doing? I'm, I'm good, sir. Um, you were a... Uh, federal uh, officer working in this prison? Yes, I was a senior lieutenant working at the uh, Federal Correctional Institution, Tallahassee, slash Federal Detention Center for well, eight if, years. If you would, sir, please fill us in on the details of what happened on that uh, morning. Okay, for my sources, and which I know my sources are right because they work at the institution, uh, what happened was prior, the, the night before, the, the evening before, the officer had already been indicted. So that evening, the officer went to work at 12 o'clock at night. And when they got off about 7.30, you know, the shift was changing. They got off. One of the officers had a gun in his presence, but no one knew anything about it. When he came to the front lobby of the Federal Detention Center, uh, Lieutenant Cochraham, which is a lieutenant, was escorting the federal agent inside, and they was getting ready to arrest him. A few words were said, and the officer pulled out his 9mm and shot Lieutenant Cochran in the leg as well as the stomach. He proceeded to shoot the federal agent. He did shoot him one time, and the guy fell out the door. So the officer that did the shooting when the agent fell outside the door, we had big pillars outside the door right before you get to the front lobby. And they was chasing each other around, shooting at each other. And now they're, they're not for sure whether or not it was the officer bullet that killed the agent or the FBI and the local police bullet that killed the agent. Well, now, this is a horrible situation. Let's talk about the underlying reasons for a moment, the reason the federal agent was there. Okay, the reason they was there to um, uh, serve charges on six officers that allegedly had been bringing in liquor, and those are the little paint-sized liquor that you can put, in, you know, put inside your pocket. 
they were allegedly bringing in drugs, and what was going on was they was having allegedly having sex with the inmates uh, when they bring in the drugs, the alcohol, the perfume, the jewelry, you know, for exchange. This has been going on. And this is not the first time an incident like this took place. When I was working there as a lieutenant, I can count at least 38 officers that was charged with having sex with inmates. And what they was doing, they was allowing the officer to go to the warden office and resign to keep them from going to prison. Now, three days before this incident, there was a white officer. He was indicted, too. They put him on administrative leave. They called him to the warden's office and allowed him to resign. But these black officer, they came in to get them. And the proper protocol is whenever an, indict, uh, an indictment take place, you call the officers as well as the agent to the warden's office. Uh, you never want to go inside of an institution put cuffs on the staff in the present inmates. You, you need to, you know, what we do, we try to use the right diplomacy when we do this. And in this case, they wanted to grandstand. They wanted to go in there and get the officers handcuffed in front of everybody, inmates, and, and the rest of the staff and take them out. This shouldn't have never happened. As a matter of fact, the officers should have never taken a weapon inside their institution. As a matter of fact, federal agents do not take weapons inside the institution. We have a drop box. Whenever, whenever the United States Marshals or the FBI or any type agents come inside the institution, it's a drop box on the outside where they lay their weapons down. Well, and this should have never taken place if they would have used the right diplomacy. We are speaking with Gary Jones, a former uh, law enforcement official within this very federal uh, detention center, a man who has spent time in the trenches of the drug war, who has seen what goes on behind these prison walls. Gary, is there any chance we'll ever stop the uh, distribution of drugs in these prisons, let alone... Oh, no. It's no way we could be able to stop drugs inside the institution. Let me tell you this. In all federal institutions, the only people that get shook down is, is the visitors. We can walk, the, office, the staff member can walk in there and bring anything they want. The only thing they have to do is put it in a bag or put it in their pocket. They're not going to get shook down. When I used to work in, in Washington, D.C., uh, D.C. Department of Correction with Lawton, at least the staff got shook down. And, you know, they personal items were going through. That was a normal protocol. But in the federal system, uh, you'll never be able to stop it. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can walk into any federal system right now if you're a staff. So staff members continue to bring drugs inside the institution. They continue to bring, bring jury inside the institution. And I'm not surprised by the staff member bringing a weapon into the institution. You know, we, will never, we don't have to go through the metal detectors. As a matter of fact, you know, the officers are in danger. The inmates are in danger. They are cutting staff. It used to be one, M, uh, one officer uh, supervising one dormitory. They done cut so much staff now that it's one officer trying to supervise three dormitories, and that's impossible. They have all kinds of drugs coming into the institute. It will never stop. It's only going to get worse. Well, if we can't keep drugs out of our prisons... How are we going to keep them out of the politicians' noses? 
A situation's developed in the city of Bridgeport, where the mayor has been found to be at least a former cocaine user, and he cried and wept in front of the press and the local constabulary asking for their forgiveness and to allow him to continue his duties to the city of Bridgeport. As you can imagine, it's been all over the papers, all over the TV, and here to talk about it is the man who's running for governor in the state of Connecticut, Mr. Cliff Thornton. My name is Cliff Thornton, Green Party candidate for governor of Connecticut. Cliff, like all the United States, you guys have uh, many forthcoming problems with drugs, drug abuse, and uh, the drug laws themselves. Give us a, a summary of what's happened up there in the last few weeks. Well, in the last few weeks, uh, this guy, John for, uh, Breezy, who's the mayor of um, Bridgeport, um, has come out with um, being using uh, cocaine. Now, we got to understand that these drug laws are meant for nobodies, but not for Bridgeport's mayor, John Fabrizi. Now, John Fabrizi could be mayor of Bridgeport for another two decades and not have done his city or Connecticut the service he has just done by getting caught using cocaine while mayor and a member of the city council. The mayor's drug use was discovered, incidentally, during a federal investigation aimed at someone else and was disclosed last week by the Connecticut Post, a the newspaper in Bridgeport. The investigative document was filed in court without the usual secrecy. For Breezy, the mayor first fudged about having made poor choices when it quickly became clear that, that uh, fudging wouldn't do uh, politically him any good, he confessed at a meeting with the newspaper's editorial board and made a tearful admission and apology at an assembly of city employees at City Hall. I've always thought that these matters should be personal and private, but the mayor, a Democrat, stressed that he had used cocaine for a year and a half and added that he had stopped drinking alcohol a few months ago as well and had gotten medical treatment. This guy means to stay in office, though there are calls from both parties for him to resign. And among those urging the mayor's resignation is a Republican who challenged him for mayor three years ago. The guy is Rick Torres. He says, how do we, ex we explain to children that drug use is dangerous and can ruin your life if the top guy is a drug user? Now, I personally think that that is a good question, but it's not the foremost question. The foremost question is, how can anyone sustain himself in public office after admitting to many felonies? Since every possession of cocaine in Connecticut is a felony, a serious crime, a crime punishable by more than a year in prison. I think personally that part of that question is why this particular felony should be, as the mayor suggests, forgiven completely for a white, middle-aged, middle-class guy who happens to be part of the government and a political establishment, while every day in Connecticut it is not forgiven for dozens of black and brown and, and poor, unskilled uh, people, even some ordinary white people as well.
Connecticut continues to imprison people even for involvement with, with, with drugs much less potent than cocaine. You know what I'm talking about, Dean, and that is cannabis. But the, but Mayor Fabrizi will, will probably not be prosecuted, and despite the, the shame he says he feels, does not plan to give up his place of honor uh, as the mayor of uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Fabrizi raises a question of the criminalization of drugs. You know what I'm talking about, because we all know that these drugs should be brought inside of the law. But what really turns me off is that this guy will get off and we won't have to pay a dime or do any time at all. Cliff, it brings to mind a couple of questions I, I wanted to uh, put forward here. One is, this is not a lone incident. This happens uh, across our nation, as I started out with. A couple that spring to mind. There was a Texas DA, I think, convicted about a year and a half ago. He was a very tough-on-drugs uh, guy, and yet he was uh, caught and convicted for possession of methamphetamine, cocaine, marijuana, and I think it was some 30 guns in his possession. Uh, another that comes to mind, I can't think of the gentleman's name, former D.C. mayor, caught with crack cocaine, re-elected. Marion Ballot, Barry. Thank you, sir. And the point being that these people managed to perform their duties as, you know, professionals. And see, that's my, my, that's my thing. Personally, I don't feel that this guy should have to do time. I mean, because I think the drugs should be in, in, inside the law. However, seeing that these drugs are still illegal, I think he should have to do time. I, and I would concur, uh, certainly, with that, Cliff. But again, I think we agree that the laws themselves are shown to be a, comp a complete falsehood in that these people could compete and achieve despite use of these drugs. Exactly. I, I agree with you thoroughly, Dean. But see, you know, the thing that, that, that irks me the most about politicians is that, and the American people and the people here in Connecticut, the nutmeggers of Connecticut, is that they don't understand we need politicians so committed to their jobs that they are willing to lose it to make the right decisions. And any politician that is not willing to risk election does not deserve to be elected in the first place. Exactly. I, I understand that uh, you are getting significant coverage there in Connecticut, the New England area, and that uh, other politicians are still unwilling to discuss the subject uh, more than just a, a quick soundbite. With, you know, you, you are absolutely correct, Dane. And see that some of the things that, that they're talking about, like in today's paper in the southern part of the state, I, I said I posed the question in the paper that they're not willing to discuss these these things. Now, here we go again. Both the governor Jody Realm, the Stanford mayor Dan Malloy, and the New Haven mayor Don John DeStefano says that's nonsense. But when you add, they asked a question. Uh, about these uh, people, the campaign manager says the candidate does not support legalizing drugs, that is Malloy, that is, but would accept medical marijuana in some circumstances if prescribed by a doctor. Uh, they also talk about, um, and this is a real st 
stupid question. And see, slowly but surely, I'm bringing these people out. He uh, Dan Malloy says, if you legalize drugs, you are just logically opening up that population that's prone to addiction and, and to become addicted. Now, if he would understand the problem and know what's going on, anybody that wants to use these illegal drugs are using them now. He doesn't understand that. And, and Rel is, is uh, backing on this thing that she signed uh, or tried to equal the, the crack cocaine uh, disparity with powder cocaine. Well, I mean, what does that do? What, how much, how much uh, does that save? What is, how does that stop the crime and violence? Do you realize, Dean, that within two weeks in Hartford, Connecticut, there were 22 shootings. Three uh, resulted in death. And the mayor of Hartford said to the children that were, that were doing it that they just don't get it. And not realizing that the authorities, and him included, just don't get it. They don't understand or are unwilling to take the responsibility for the, for the fact that they created this atmosphere, which causes these children to act that way. They create the problem, and then they blame the children for it. So things have got to change. Indeed they do, my friend. Now, if folks want to learn more about your campaign, point them where they should go on the web. VoteThornton.com. That's T-H-O-R-N.com. VoteThornton.com. It's very simple. And uh, the answer is uh, simple. It's evident. It's glaring. It's staring us in the face. Like you say, these, these politicians just cannot see what they have wrought. I know. And see, Dean, the thing that drug policy reformers have to really understand for those that really want to take this challenge on is that by running for political office, especially on a statewide basis, it gives you the platform to espouse drug policy reform and pull these fools up to that platform and make them discuss it. Absolutely right. Well, once again, we've been speaking with Mr. Cliff Thornton. He's running for governor for the state of Connecticut on the Green Party ticket, and his website, once again, is votethornton.com. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Four and one-half years ago, while the wreckage of New York's Twin Towers still smoldered, U.S. forces invaded Afghanistan and liberated the country's opium trade. Since September 11, 2001, Afghan illegal opium production has risen from 185 to 4,500 metric tons annually. American-occupied Afghanistan's opium bumper crops are equivalent to 500 metric tons of heroin yearly. If one assumes 14 individual doses per gram of bush white, our current record production represents approximately 7 billion hits per year or 20 million hits per day. 
On George Bush's watch and America's dime, Afghanistan has been allowed, perhaps encouraged, to corner the world's heroin black market. With 90% market dominance, one can reasonably conclude that the unholy alliance between the current administration and Afghanistan's drug lords constitutes the world's most pervasive and powerful illegal drug cartel. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime will release its annual World Drug Report on Monday, June 26th. Unlike prior such releases, this one will be held in Washington, D.C., along with U.S. officials including drug czar John Walters, DEA chief Karen Tandy, and the State Department's Ann Patterson. It will be interesting to see how things will get spun. For example, the U.N. this week released its Andean Coca Survey 2005. According to the U.N., in Colombia there were 86,000 hectares of coca cultivated in 2005. The U.S., on the other hand, in April, estimated that Colombia cultivated 144,000 hectares of coca that year. The U.N. also notes in its new cocaine report that Colombians are growing a higher yield variety of coca these days. The old rule of thumb, which the U.S. came up with, was 4.7 kilograms of pure cocaine per hectare of coca. According to new U.N. estimates, Colombians now average 7.7 kilograms per hectare. Any way you cut it, the bottom line is more cheap cocaine on the world and U.S. markets than ever before. Most likely, the U.S. and U.N. will try to divert attention from this and other failures by raising the specter of narco-terror, that is, the financial link between drug trafficking and revolutionary or terrorist groups around the world. It is sad that these officials continue to miss the obvious point. Prohibition gives terrorists and others the ability to raise money through drug production and trafficking. Regulation and control is the only way to guarantee public safety and security. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. Dearly beloved, let us now take a few moments to remember the innocent victims of America's war on drugs. Once called innocent bystanders, now they go by the sanitized appellation collateral damage. Like 57-year-old Delbert Bonner of Belpre, Ohio, damaged to death by eight police bullets in a drug raid. They were looking for his son. Or eight-year-old Xavier Bennett, also shot to death by police. Let us take a moment to remember Rudy Cardenas, cut down at the age of 43 in San Jose, California. Rudy was a father of five, just passing by a house targeted by narcotics officers who were attempting to serve a parole violation warrant. And the police mistakenly thought he was the one they were there to arrest. Mr. Cardenas, obviously unarmed, was shot several times in the back. And let us remember Mr. Donald P. Scott, 61-year-old reclusive millionaire living in Malibu, California. Thanks to forfeiture laws, Mr. Scott's millions, rather than insulating him from the violence, put a target on his back. Mr. Scott's home was raided by 32 armed men, and Mr. Scott was gunned down in front of his wife. Needless to say, there was no marijuana. These good people and countless others are gone from us today, taken not by drugs, but by drug prohibition. Stand up, speak up, before someone you love becomes collateral damage of the drug war. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson.
This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's Corrupt Cop Story for the Drug Truth Network. This week we're going to Cheesehead Country, or more precisely, Dane County, Wisconsin, home of the state capital, Madison. In the small Dane County town of Dunn, a former Dane County Sheriff's deputy was arrested June 14th on federal marijuana distribution conspiracy charges. Robert Lowry, age 57, is accused in federal affidavits of employing a young Genesee, Wisconsin couple to bring hundreds of pounds of pot to Wisconsin from Arizona. During a raid on his home by State Department of Criminal Investigation agents and Dane County deputies, the cops seized 15 pounds of pot, 25 ounces of cocaine, five guns, and $47,000 in cash. They also seized 52 dogs, including 50 pit bulls in the raid, and arrested Lowry's wife on weapons and cocaine possession charges as well. Lowry was fired as a Dane County deputy in 1981 after being accused of seeking information to provide to drug dealing associates, and federal charging documents allege he's been in the business ever since. The young couple has also been arrested on federal marijuana conspiracy charges. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories this week. Check them out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. In recognition of outstanding achievements in the field of outstanding, the Drug Truth Network is proud to present the Tin Foil Hat Award. Probably take all the suspense out of it if I tell you we're giving away five tin foil hats this week for daring to shred the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and to hand over more power to the most heavily armed civilian outfits in America, done supposedly so that drug users won't have time to flush their drugs down the toilet. So this week we award the tinfoil hat to Antonin, you don't really need that house, do you, Scalia? Samuel, Payne is good, Alito. Anthony, I'm not really a Kennedy. Clarence, short and curly. Thomas, and Chief Jokestus. John, torture is good for business, Roberts. We shall bring salvation kicking in the door. Earlier this week, John Tierney, writing for the New York Times, offered up a column, The SWAT Syndrome. Quote, of all the excuses for weakening the Fourth Amendment, the weirdest was the one offered by Justice Antonin Scalia last week in a Michigan drug case. He wrote the majority opinion allowing police officers to use evidence in a home even if they entered without following the venerable rule to knock first and announce themselves. To reassure traditionalists, Scalia declared the unreasonable searches are less of a problem today because of, quote, the increasing professionalism of police forces, end quote. Well, it's true that when police show up at your home in the middle of the night, they are better armed and trained than ever. They now routinely arrive with assault rifles, flash grenades, and battering rams. So if your definition of a professional is a soldier in a war zone, then Scalia is right. Next week, we'll allow John Tierney, the New York Times columnist, to explain further, because he'll be our guest right here on the Cultural Baggage Radio program. Okay, I don't have any new affiliates to add this week or none that I'm aware of. If you're out there auditioning our show, if you're carrying us on a regular basis, please send me an email to dean at drugtruth.net. I've uh, had a hard time keeping up with all the balls I'm juggling here. This new video production company is fixing to get underway. We'll be producing a weekly segment. It's going to have the title of The Evident Truth. And our one-hour program, I think, is still tentatively titled The Unvarnished Truth. 
A few of the guests I've already captured on DV are Jack Cole, head of law enforcement against prohibition, Eric Sterling of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation, and Dr. Robert Melamede, who explains to the audience about endocannabinoids. If you are familiar with access in your neighborhood, or if you'd like to learn more, please send me an email, dean at drugtruth.net. If you get the chance, I would urge you to listen to this week's Century of Lies program. It features an interview with Gatewood Galbraith. He's the author of Last Free Man in America. You'll also hear reports from the Marijuana Policy Project, Americans for Safe Access, Bayou City Compassion, and a Michigan group all working together to activate you to stand up for medical marijuana and to help pass the Hinchy Rohrbacher bill. You can learn more by visiting the website of the Marijuana Policy Project, mpp.org. And you can hear the show by visiting our website, drugtruth.net. We've got podcasting available as well. And in closing, I remind you that because of prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth, the show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of the <laughs>